Section twenty five of How the Other Half Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. How the Other Half Lives by Jacob Rees. Chapter twenty five The Man with the Knife. A man stood at the corner of Fifth Avenue and Fourteenth Street the other day, looking gloomily at the carriages that rolled by, carrying the wealth and fashion of the avenues to and from the big stores downtown. He was poor and hungry and ragged. This thought was in his mind. They behind their well-fed teams have no thought for the morrow. They know hunger only by name, and ride down to spend in an hour's shopping that would keep me and my little ones from one to whole year. There rose up before him the pictures of those little ones crying for bread around the cold and cheerless hearth. Then he sprang into the throng and splashed about him with a knife, blindly seeking to kill, to revenge. The man was arrested, of course, and locked up. Today he is probably in a madhouse, forgotten, and the carriages roll by to and from the big stores with their gay throng of shoppers. The world forgets easily, too, what it does not like to remember. Nevertheless, the man and his knife had a mission. They spoke in their ignorant, impatient way, the warning one of the most conservative, dispassionate of public bodies had sounded only a little while before. Our only fear is that reform may come in a burst of public indignation, destructive to property and to good morals. They represented one solution of the problem of ignorant poverty versus ignorant wealth that has come down to us unsolved, the danger cry of which we have lately heard in the shout that never should have been raised on American soil, the shout of the masses against the classes, the solution of violence. There is another solution, that of justice, the choices between the two. Which shall it be? Well, say some well-meaning people, we don't see the need of putting it in that way. We have been down among the tenements looking them over. There are a good many people there. They are not comfortable, perhaps. What would you have? They are poor, and their houses are not such hovels as we have seen and read of in the slums of the old world. They are decent in comparison. Why, some of them have brownstone fronts. You will own at least that they make a decent show. Yes, that is true. The worst tenements in New York do not, as a rule, look bad. Neither Hell's Kitchen nor Murderer's Row bears its true character stamped on the front. They are not quite old enough, perhaps. The same is true of their tenants. The New York tough may be ready to kill where his London brother would do little more than scowl. Yet as a general, though, he is less repulsively brutal in looks. Here again the reason may be the same. The breed is not so old. A few generations more in the slums, and all that will be changed. To get at the pregnant facts of tenement house life, one must look beneath the surface. Many an apple has a fair skin and a rotten core. There is a much better argument for the tenements in the assurance of the Registrar of Vital Statistics that the death rate of these houses has of late been brought below the general death rate of the city, and that it is lowest in the biggest houses. This means two things. One, that the almost exclusive attention given to the tenements by the sanitary authorities in twenty years has borne some fruit, and that the newer tenements are better than the old. There is some hope in that. The other, that the whole strain of tenement house-dwellers has been bred down to the conditions under which it exists, that the struggle with corruption has begotten the power to resist it. 
This is a familiar law of nature, necessary to its first and strongest impulse of self-preservation. To a certain extent we are all creatures of the condition that surround us physically and morally. But is the knowledge reassuring? In the light of what we have seen, does not the question arise, what sort of creature, then, this of the tenement? I try to draw his likeness from observation in telling the story of the tough. Has it nothing to suggest the man with the knife? I will go further. I am not willing even to admit it to be an unqualified advantage that our New York tenements have less of the slum look than those of older cities. It helps to delay the recognition of their true character on the part of the well-meaning, but uninstructed, who are always in the majority. The dangerous classes of New York long ago compelled recognition. They are dangerous less because of their own crimes than because of the criminal ignorance of those who are not of their kind. The danger to society comes not from the poverty of the tenements, but from the ill-spent wealth that reared them, that it might earn an assurious interest from a class from which nothing else was expected. That was the broad foundation laid down, and the edifice built upon its corresponds to the groundwork. That this is well understood on the unsafe side of the line that separates the rich from the poor, much better than those who have all the advantages of discriminating education, it is good cause for disquietude. In it a keen foresight may again dimly discern the shadow of the man with the knife. Two years ago a great meeting was held at Chickering Hall. I have spoken of it before, a meeting that discussed for days and nights the question how to banish this spectre, how to lay hold with good influences of this enormous mass of more than a million people who were drifting away faster and faster from the safe moorings of the old faith. Clergymen and laymen from all the Protestant denominations took part in the discussion. Nor was a good word forgotten for the brethren of the other great Christian fold who labour among the poor. Much was said that was good and true, and the ways were found of reaching the spiritual needs of the tenement population that promised success. But at no time throughout the conference was the real keynote of the situation so boldly struck as has been done by a few far-seeing businessmen who had listened to the cry of that Christian builder. How shall the love of God be understood by those who have been nurtured in sight only of the greed of man? Their practical program of philanthropy and five per cent has set examples in tenement building that show, though they are yet few and scattered, what may be in time accomplished even with such poor opportunities as New York offers today of undoing the old wrong. This is a gospel of justice, the solution that must be sought as the one alternative to the man with the knife. Are you not looking too much to the material condition of these people? said a good minister to me after a lecture in Harlem Church last winter, and forgetting the inner man. I told him, No, for you cannot expect to find an inner man to appeal to in the worst tenement house surroundings. You must first put the man where he can respect himself, traverse the argument of the apple. You cannot expect to find a sound core in a rotten fruit. End of chapter twenty five. Recording by Ashley Jane.